Good afternoon. It does feel a little bit like coming back home, being here at the Advent. A number of you have become good friends over the years, and your two former deans, Paul Zoll and Frank Limehouse, have been and continue to be uh, wonderful friends. In fact, it may not surprise you a bit to know that uh, Paul and I are going to go together to a, a rock concert uh, this coming July up in Canada. <coughs> As a matter of fact, I remember that Paul, um, he used to offer Dean's Prizes here to people who could answer certain questions. So let me offer you a, a visiting Dean's Prize uh, this morning, this afternoon, if you know the singer that Paul and I are going to hear. Especially since I gather your preacher earlier this week was an aficionado of uh, rock and roll. Uh, here's a clue. Uh, this singer sang American Woman. Raise your hand if you know who we're going to go here sing. Well, Dave, I told David Danny last night, so that doesn't count. So. All right. Well, if you think you know it, come let me know afterwards. Um, I'm really excited about this new chapter that the Cathedral Church of the Advent is entering with Andrew Pearson as your new dean. Um, we're praying for all of you up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I just want to thank you for the privilege of uh, sharing just a bit today and tomorrow. Uh, in the fellowship and in the ministry of this really amazing cathedral. Now, I want to begin by going back to the 1960s, which was a wonderful rock and roll era, but I want to go back to sports in that decade, and specifically to a little fact that you may not have known, which was that President Lyndon Johnson had a nephew named Randy Johnson. <clears throat> and Randy was the quarterback of the Oklahoma State University football team. Randy was also not a very good quarterback, and in his senior year, uh, the team did not have a very good season. As the clock was running down on the final game, Oklahoma State was behind by six points, and on the very last play, they were 80 yards from the goal line. The rain, rain was pouring down, the players were exhausted, Oklahoma State had no chance of winning. So as a gesture of goodwill, the coach of the Oklahoma State team put all of the seniors into the game so that they could end their uh, college football career on the field. And the team huddled up, and Randy called play 13. It was a trick play that had never been tried before. And the reason that it had never been tried is that it had never worked in practice. <laughs> The impossible happened. Play 13 worked. Oklahoma State scored, and Randy Johnson's team won the game by one point. And after the game was over, the coach came up to Randy and said, what in the world made you call play 13? And Randy said, well, we were in the huddle, and I looked at Harry with tears running down his cheeks and I saw that big number eight on his chest. And then I looked over at Ralph, and tears were running down his cheeks, and I saw that big number seven on his chest. And so in honor of these two heartbroken seniors, I added their numbers together and called play 13. <laughs> on the football field of Oklahoma State University, the correct answer is not always the right answer. 
At Oklahoma State University, when you add 8 and 7, the correct answer is 15. But the right answer is 13. Where else might we see this same dynamic at work? Some of you may remember the greatest, for my money, uh, cowboy movie of any time called High Noon. The correct answer in that movie is for Gary Cooper to leave town with his new bride, Grace Kelly, and to go off and have a wonderful honeymoon, have some kids, come back to town, and have a great career as a sheriff. The right answer is to stay in town and to face the bad guys at high noon. The correct answer for Dietrich Bonhoeffer is to stay in the United States as World War II approaches and to have an amazing career as a theologian and a pastor and a spiritual leader for generations of young Christians. The right answer is to get on one of the very last boats sailing to Germany before the war breaks out and to face his own high noon. And then we come from the, to, to the passage in Scripture that I'm thinking about this morning. It's the Last Supper. And supper being ended, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, after that poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. If I were God, I would want to do a major rewrite of that story in order to describe the correct answer. Here's the correct version of that story. During supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God, got up from the table and unleashed the armies of heaven on all who had opposed him and on all who did not believe what he said. He wiped out evil in every form and rescued those who suffered from it. Which is to say, I would choose the correct answer of power. And the fact that Jesus knows that he could choose power right here, if he wanted to, makes what he does do, the right answer, seem so incredible as to be almost unbelievable. Instead of taking up a sword, taking up this basin of water and a towel, and washing the feet of his disciples. And you remember that Peter gets confused and he gets angry by this action of Jesus. Because to say that real power comes from being a servant is to grate against everything that this world teaches us. I mean, let me just ask you, what do your feet look like? Uh, this may be more information than you need, but let me just say that um, I was born with flat feet so that when I get out of the shower, it's like round circles on the floor. When I was in eighth grade, I had an operation on both of my big toes so that now I only have three quarters of nails on both of my big toes. About ten years ago, I was playing soccer out in the street, and I went to kick the soccer ball and sort of drove my foot into the street about six inches behind the ball so that one of my um, uh, big toenails is gone. Uh, this is a whole lot more than you needed to know. Uh, but for me to put my best foot forward, is not to put my feet forward. 
And the right answer is that it's my feet that Jesus wants to serve and to show his power. The right answer is that Easter and grace and love in this upside-down kingdom of God gets started only when all is lost. Easter and grace and love really take hold in the moments when all we've got are ugly feet and broken hearts and guilty consciences and despairing spirits. The old hymn sounds a little trite, but it's true. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And our dear friend, St. Peter, is living proof of this. Because his confusion and his anger at the Last Supper over this foot-washing stuff is small potatoes compared to what happens next. You remember, you know the story. Jesus is arrested and he's taken to a prison cell. And Peter follows along the way at a little distance. Three times someone says to Peter, aren't you the guy who's a follower of that man? And three times Peter says of this friend he loves more than anyone in the world, I don't know him. And in St. Luke's account of this scene, as soon as Peter denies Jesus the third time, St. Luke's writes, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter wept bitterly. And I once heard a preacher describe this moment and then say, and you and I should be so lucky. Because Peter has got nowhere to hide. His feet, his heart, his spirit, they're all in full view. And although he doesn't know it at this moment, Easter and grace and love are going to take hold in his life in just a few days. After the one who goes to the cross for him, after the one walks out of the tomb for him, uh, they meet again one last time over breakfast on the beach up on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And you remember that Jesus and Peter leave the other disciples by the campfire and they go for a walk along the beach. And three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says in effect, I blew it. I haven't really loved you at all. And what right answer does Jesus give Peter in that moment? He says, in effect, Peter, I love you. Feed my sheep. I want to close by telling you about two good friends of mine, Ed and Lisa. They are parents up in uh, Massachusetts of four young, lively, loud, energetic, boisterous, wonderful children. And several summers ago, Ed and Lisa invited me to dinner in August. It was an amazing meal. On the table, there was a bowl full of green beans. There was a platter with corn on the cob. There was another platter with slices of grilled steak. There was a bowl of summer squash. There was a gravy boat filled to the brim with gravy. There was a dish with butter, 
There was a bowl with salad. There were several containers of various salad dressings. There was a pitcher of water. There was a pitcher of iced tea. There was one bottle each of red wine and white wine. And around the edges of the table were seven plates and glasses and sets of silverware. It was Thanksgiving in August. We all sat down to eat and said grace. Just then, their eldest son, who at the time was 12 years old, dropped his fork on the floor accidentally. He leapt off his chair, scrambled under the table, grabbed his fork, and stood up. Unfortunately, under the table. And let me say that this was a standing up in which he did not simply gently bump his head. This was a standing up of someone who thought he was not under the table and who was really excited about eating. That table exploded. I have never seen anything like it. It was spectacular. The steak headed straight for the ceiling. Green beans shot like bullets towards the kitchen. An ear of corn missed my head by uh, an inch. Gravy splattered all over the walls. Torrents of iced tea just swept across the table like a tidal wave. And then, as little bits of lettuce just gently floated down to the ground, there was dead silence in that dining room. On the faces of the three younger children were expressions of shock and terror, and their eyes were glued on their parents. Me too. <laughs> and for a long moment, Ed and Lisa did not move. Then they looked at each other, and then Lisa started to cry. Or at least, I thought she was crying. Ed raised his napkin and covered his face. And both of them, with their hands to their faces, began to shake. And it took me several moments to realize that they were not shaking in anger or in sorrow. They were doing everything in their power to hold back from breaking into laughter. Ed and Lisa could so easily have been filled with righteous anger toward their son for ruining a magnificent meal, wiping out an entire dining room. That would have been the correct answer. I'm sure that this was not the first time that this son had knocked something over on the table. It's the kind of behavior that gets you sent to your room for a month. But when that boy finally emerged from under the table, just awash with fear and guilt, with nowhere to hide, he was in effect standing beside St. Peter on the beach. And as he came out, he was met by a mother and a father with open arms and with sweet, sweet smiles. The same arms that Peter encountered on the beach. The same arms that are right here, right now. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Thank you for this almost impossible to believe invitation to come just as we are without one plea. Thank you for the open arms of your son 
May we be enabled to come out from under our tables and into the experience of your amazing grace. And all this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.